one of the problems uh, that we uh, all face in life, at least from time to time, is when we encounter a powerful coercive force that says to us, either become like us or we'll squash you. Uh, it may be that we encounter such a force in our workplace. Uh, many corporations, uh, either big or small, uh, many corporations have um, uh, powerful corporate cultures with very evil aspects to them. Endemic bullying, institutionalized lying, theft, um, tax evasion, arrogance, pride, or a machismo culture where masculine strength is exalted and leadership is defined as the ability to bend others to your will. Uh, we might in, encounter such a coercive force uh, in the schoolyard or in a social clique wherein acceptance perhaps means agreeing to despise certain others and or accepting certain evil behaviors such as lying or gossip or slandering those not present. All over the world, uh, Christians encounter powerful coercive forces when they come to faith in Christ in lands where Christianity is not tolerated. And there are many such countries. There are dozens of countries where conversion to Christ, if and when it becomes known, will lead to imprisonment, torture, and death. I understand that at this present time, um, those in the know understand North Korea to be the most dangerous country in the world to be a Christian uh, in. So, you know, whether we're talking about government of North Korea or big mining company we're working for, what do we do? How are we to think? How are we to pray when we meet such powerful coercive forces that say to us, either become like us or we'll squash you? And we know straight away, we know straight away that indeed they do have the power to do precisely that. Well, um, today, actually, we look at a miracle that answers that question. Uh, it's an odd miracle, uh, the cursing of the fig tree. It's easily misunderstood. Um, I've heard all kinds of things said about this miracle in response to it. For example, just as one example, I remember hearing, uh, listening to a uh, Muslim cleric use this text as proof text that Jesus could not possibly be divine couldn't possibly be God. His argument ran like this. He said, all people everywhere agree that God is at least three things. God is omnipotent, that is to say all-powerful. God is omniscient, that is to say all-knowing. And God is omnipresent, that is to say everywhere. Here is Jesus. He didn't know whether or not the fig tree had any figs on it. So he's clearly not omniscient. He had to walk over to find out, so he's clearly not omnipresent. And he wasn't able to make it fruitful, so he's clearly not omnipotent. It's a difficult miracle to understand. Furthermore, the teaching that Jesus gives based upon the miracle in verses 22 to 25 is also difficult to understand and easy to misunderstand. If you're familiar, perhaps, with the sacred diary of Adrian Plass, aged 37 and three quarters... You'll be familiar with the attempts of at least one Christian to move a paperclip around his desk by faith. Reasoning that he'll begin with the paperclip and move on to mountains. But he couldn't do it. Well, miracles can be very difficult 
to understand. Um, However, in this series of sermons, and uh, this is number 8 of 10, we've looked at miracles in Mark's gospel so as to see that, in fact, when miracles are responsibly interpreted in their biblical context, they are actually an amazingly articulate form of communication. Miracles tell us so much, it's miraculous. So what does this miracle tell us? Well, let's find out. Um, The first thing to register about this miracle is its context in the gospel. Jesus has already entered the city of Jerusalem, and it is only a matter of two or three days until the Passover festival, the feast at which he will be crucified and killed. Uh, In the church calendar, today is Palm Sunday, and the traditional text for Palm Sunday is the first half of chapter 11, or its equivalent in Matthew or Luke. Um, And in that text, we see Jesus entering into Jerusalem on the back of uh, a a donkey, um, a a, a foal, the the colt of a donkey. And what Jesus is doing, and everybody knows it, is he's fulfilling various Old Testament scriptures. He is publicly accepting the title of Messiah, King of Israel. And that is a provocative act. It's a direct challenge to the religious establishment of Jerusalem. The chief priests, the Levites, the Pharisees, Sadducees, teachers of the law, the scribes, etc., etc., they must either accept Christ's claim to kingship and bow to him or proclaim him an imposter. The crowds who witnessed Christ's entry into Jerusalem understood the significance of the event and they are men it heartily laying down their cloaks on the road, um, waving palm branches and singing and shouting the words of Psalm 118. And they're celebrating the arrival of God's King, the Son of David who will take up the throne of David, the Messiah. They all agree Jesus is King. During this time, Jesus will spend his days teaching in the temple in Jerusalem, staying each night in Bethany, a village two and a half kilometers outside of Jerusalem's walls. His teaching ministry in the temple courts will draw him into lengthy discussions with the powerful religious establishment of Jerusalem. Now the miracle itself, the miracle of the cursing of the withering of the fig tree is recorded in two of our four Gospels. Uh, Matthew and Mark both give us an account of the incident. And as we've seen before, it is Mark's account that is more detailed. Matthew uh, tells us in his account that the fig tree was beside the road. Now, what that's telling you straight away is you're not going to expect any figs to be on that fig tree, not if it's beside the road, because everybody going in and out of Jerusalem is going to feel quite free, as the law of Moses allows them to feel quite free, to pick any fruit that's there and to eat it as they're going along. So from Matthew's account, we know this is a tree. It's not going to have any fruit on it because it's next to the road. We get the same thing from Mark. He also tells us that um, it's spring. This wasn't the season for figs. No one would have actually expected figs to be on this tree. We need to keep that in mind. Here's another thing to keep in mind. Matthew relates the incident to us in a straightforward way. He tells us the beginning, then he tells us the middle, then he tells us the end. Mark does something that we've seen him do a number of times before. What he does is he starts telling a story one, which is about a fig tree, And then he tells us a second story, story number two, 
which in this case is about Jesus in conflict with, with the chief priests and the teachers of the law. And he does that before he finishes story one. So what we've got is a story sandwich with story two in the middle, separating the beginning from the end. And this technique, as you may recall, um, we've talked about it before, is called uh, a Markan intercalation. It's a story sandwich. And what Mark is inviting us to do when he does this is to compare the stories, to interpret one in the light of the other. That's something else that we need to bear in mind. One last thing that I think we need to bear in mind when it comes to this miracle is, is to understand it in, in the context of the whole Bible, is to, to widen out the field of view. And when we include the Old Testament we actually find that the Old Testament has a lot to say about fig trees, about fruit, and specifically about disappointment over failure to find fruit where it was expected. Figuratively speaking, humanity was created to bear fruit. That's why we were made. This is mentioned right at the start of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. After making human beings, male and female, in the image and likeness of God, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. This, this blessing to be fruitful is obviously God's blessing upon our reproductive success, that, that, that we will indeed increase from a population of two to a population that would fill the whole earth. God's blessing to be fruitful in that context is also God's enabling presence with us to be his representatives that we might rule over the earth in God's image and likeness, that we might work for God with God, like God. But of course, not long after that, sin enters the picture, sin enters the story, and nothing is ever quite right after that. Indeed, in the Old Testament, we hear through multiple prophets of God's long-standing disappointment with his people, the nation that he chose for himself, that he keeps on expecting his people to be fruitful, but they never are. Isaiah likened the nation of Israel to a vineyard, one that bears bad fruit. And the prophet Micah, um, in one of his oracles, chapter 7, he, um, he articulates God's disappointment. Speaking on behalf of God, he says, this is what the Lord says, I am like one who gathers summer fruit at the gleaning of the vineyard. There is no cluster of grapes to eat, none of the early figs that I crave. He then goes on to explain what he means. Everyone, everyone's turned to evil, bribery, corruption, slander, injustice, even murder, the best of them like thorn bushes. W widening out the context then to include the whole Bible, we can talk about human fruitfulness, therefore, as anything that we do that honors God because it represents him accurately. Anything that points to God, anything that draws others to God, anything that is loving, selfless, compassionate, gentle, faithful, kind, patient, merciful, all of these things accurately represent God. That's fruitfulness in God's eyes. Being unfruit, unfruitful, bearing bad fruit, 
is anything that misrepresents God, anything that we do that inaccurately shows the world who God is, anything that points people away from God, anything that promotes the misuse of God's gifts, greed, selfishness, hatred, argumentativeness, self-assertiveness, sexual immorality, envy, short-temperedness, murder, etc., etc. house of prayer for all nations but you have made it a den of robbers now um, the money changes were in the temple because the temple had its own currency uh, greco-roman coins were not allowed into the temple precincts because they carried on them an image of caesar and an inscription that said that he was a god so that's idolatrous. That can't go into the, the temple. You needed to change your money on your way in. The doves were there for a legitimate purpose as well. When it came to offering God the right sacrifice according to the laws of Moses, whether it be a bull or a goat or a lamb or a dove, it was lawful according to the law to leave your own livestock at home, particularly if you, for example, lived on the other side of the Mediterranean. You leave your own livestock at home. You carry the right amount of silver with you. And then you buy the equivalent livestock at the temple on your arrival. The law of Moses allowed that. So this temple business that Jesus is shutting down is legitimate in principle. But we can, I think, safely assume that with all of this trade and transaction, tidy profits were being made, and the beneficiary of this income was the Jewish religious establishment of Jerusalem. God wanted from his temple good fruit. The expectation is summarized in, up, uh, summarized in the phrase, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. From Isaiah chapter 56. What Jesus found, however, was bad fruit. The judgment delivered is that it had become a den of robbers. What Jesus found was greed. Uh, buyers and sellers taking advantage of people. Prophets before prayer or piety. Jesus' cleansing of the temple is, of course, a public act of judgment upon its leadership. He has publicly shamed them. And he has publicly assumed the role of their boss. Verse 18, the chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him. Because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. This guy is popular. He's being listened to. And the, the more they listen to him, the more likely it is that they're going to lose their jobs. That's why we're going to have to kill him. It's one thing to run counter to the religious establishment out in the boondocks, out in Galilee. It's another thing to publicly shame them in Jerusalem. We know historically just how dangerous that could be. They are an extremely powerful coercive force. In Jerusalem, you do it their way or not at all. 
either become like us or we'll squash you. And as readers of Mark's gospel, having followed, followed Jesus through the pages of Mark's book, we may be tempted to shout out loud as though it were a paradigm, as though it was a pantomime, Jesus, watch out behind you. You're in such great danger. These are dangerous men. But actually, we don't need to do that because story one, the cursing of the fig tree, allows us to see this central episode in a different light. It is not Jesus who is in danger, but rather the Pharisees. Rather than shouting out, Jesus, watch out behind you, we should be shouting out to the Jews of Jerusalem, watch out in front of you. The, the cursing of the fig tree, then, is an enacted parable. The tree is a prop. It's a symbol. The cursing of the tree creates a metaphor. When Jesus turns up, you do not want to be found fruitless. Truly, it is not Jesus who's in danger, but rather the people of Jerusalem. They are in danger of being cursed. What that would mean is that they'll lose the protection of God because they have abandoned the purpose of God, the purpose for which they were created. What, what, what does this miracle say about Jesus? Well, um, unlike the Old Testament prophets who took up God's complaint and announced, it to, and announced to Israel God's displeasure, Jesus comes in the role not of a prophet but of God. He assumes the role of God. Jesus came looking for fruit for himself. That's not what prophets do. That's what God does. Jesus assumes in this enacted parable the role of God. To be sure, some, that is an extraordinary claim, and it's going to require extraordinary proof. Mark offers us initially some extraordinary proof. The plant obeyed Jesus' word as God's word, and it withered overnight, completely dead, totally dried out, a process that otherwise might take weeks or months. The plant certainly responded to Jesus as God with us. The ultimate proof for these claims, of course, will be the resurrection. And we'll look at that miracle next Sunday. What, what does this miracle tell us about Jesus? It tells us that he is God, that he is God with us. What does this miracle say about why Jesus came? Jesus comes to judge the fruitlessness of humanity. God is indeed patient with fruitless trees, but not endlessly so. Judgment days come. What does this miracle say about us. Well, actually, it says a lot about us. Um, Jesus gave his disciples the miracle of the fig tree as a private miracle. The Pharisees, Sadducees, teachers of the Lord, chief priests, they never saw it or heard about it. It is Peter who sees the withered tree, remembers what was said, draws Christ's attention to it, and the attention of the other disciples to it as well. Jesus responds, interestingly, not by discussing the power that he has, nor by urging his disciples to be fruitful. But rather, he responds to it by discussing the power that the disciples have, yet don't yet know it. That's what Jesus talks about. Verse 22, have faith in God, Jesus answered. 
Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go, throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in their heart, but believes what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you've received it, and it will be yours. What's really important about this miracle, according to Jesus, is not what it says about him, but rather what it says about us. He assumes we already know, and from all of the other miracles, and we've seen it time and time again, that those who follow him will do the works that he has been doing. For to follow Jesus is to copy Jesus, and his call is his enabling. But his language is parabolic, metaphorical, figurative. Um, We don't ever see Jesus chucking mountains into the sea. Um, Nor, as far as I understand it, is there a long and glorious tradition of mountain chucking in the history of the Christian church. Um, So what's Jesus talking about? Well, um, actually, there is a mountain in view. Um, On the road into Jerusalem from Bethany, there is a mountain in plain sight of Jesus and his disciples, and it is the Temple Mount. What then is the mountain, figuratively speaking, what is the mountain? The mountain is anything that opposes the kingdom of God, the reign of Jesus Christ on this earth. One of the problems in life that we all face, at least from time to time, is when we encounter a powerful coercive force that says to us, either become like us or we'll squash you. Uh, Jesus shows us the way. Now, now let's be clear about this. Jesus took on an extremely powerful clique, the Jewish religious establishment of Jerusalem. And they squashed him. Uh, They killed him, hung him on a cross, the punishment for blasphemy. But that mountain was thrown into the sea. Judgment days come. And the Temple Mount was shut down in the year AD 70. No sacrifices there since, only prayer. Nothing but prayer. You can go there today, if you like, and pray. Um, write your prayer on a piece of paper, stick it in, in, in the, between the bricks of the one wall that remains, but you can't sacrifice a lamb or a dove or anything else. It's a place of prayer and prayer only. Shut down for all other purposes. Um, over the years, I've prayed with quite a number of friends who've been bullied out of workplaces. Um, constructive dismissal. Um, atmosphere goes toxic. Uh, peers go hostile. Bosses accuse. And they meet some kind of powerful coercive force that says, become like us or we'll squash you. And they refused. And many of them were squashed. Um, sometimes the worst kind of evil is human evil. Uh, when, when we are bullied or victimized, we can feel so very, very powerless. And it really, really hurts. And 
our brothers and sisters and our family and our friends, they can see the danger that, that we're in and they don't want us to get hurt and um, they know that we're going to get squashed and, and they shout to us and they say things like, run, flee like a bird to the mountains for look, the wicked bend their bows. They set their arrows against the strings to shoot at the shadows, uh, shoot from the shadows at the upright in heart. I mean, after all, what can the righteous do when the foundations are being destroyed? What can we do in the face of such great hatred? In other words, fix your eyes on the evil that is surrounding you and be frightened. But Jesus responds to us, no, the Lord is in his temple. The Lord sits on his heavenly throne. He sees everyone. He examines everyone. Who's in danger here? The righteous? No way. The wicked? Yes, way. They're in danger of fire and burning sulfur and scorching winds. In other words, fix your eyes on Jesus and you'll see evil in perspective. Jesus says to us, his disciples, have you got any idea how powerful you are? Yeah, yes, yes, we do get squashed. We follow Christ in going to the cross, but God raises the dead. God raises the righteous one from the dead. Yes, occasionally, like Jesus, we get crucified, but God raises the squashed. Therefore, in the face of that powerful coercive force, pray. Verse 25, and when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Um, what, what Jesus is showing us is, is that the, this is spiritual warfare. Um, it's spiritual warfare because wherever you go, today, tomorrow, through this week, as Christ's representative, wherever you go, the kingdom of God is breaking in. You are Christ's representative. This is spiritual warfare. And forgiveness is the nuclear bomb of spiritual warfare, vaporizing huge amounts of evil in a single flash. Astonishingly powerful. Families, schools, workplaces, institutions, temples, cities, and nations are being redeemed all over the world by Christians more willing to be squashed than to compromise. They are often forced out scapegoats suffering innocently for the sins of others but in their sacrifice there is change that's God's promise he's at work kingdom change should should we be scared for the Christians our brothers and sisters in North Korea well absolutely we should be praying for them but if we're going to feel frightened it should be for Kim Jong-il watch out in front of you What does this miracle say about us? Don't fear the bully. He's the one who should be afraid. Forgive him, placing the issue of justice into God's hands. And know for sure that any mountain stupid enough to get in the way of Jesus will regret it. The Lord, as astonishing as this is, the Lord is with you. Amen.